Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our November 15th, 2007 edition of the show. It's 4.06 on the clock. Before we get started, a couple of quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate appreciate that. That's rglarson at kuci.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. If you've ever spent any time listening to uh, conservative political pundits, especially on right-wing radio, you've most likely heard about how liberals or progressives favor a nanny state where the government takes care of everybody. But is it really the conservatives who favor a nanny state, only where the government only takes care of those who are already well taken care of? That is the case that Dean Baker makes in his book, The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. Mr. Baker is our special guest today. He is an economist and co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. Dean Baker, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I've uh, quite enjoyed reading your book. It's uh, There were a lot of things in there that I sort of had an intuitive sense about, but I'd never seen it put down in these sort of uh, uh, stark terms with some you know very solid facts. It, it was really uh, nice to be able to read that, because even if you're, you're not a regular listener to uh, conservative right-wing radio, you can't help but get, get uh, bombarded by that sort of viewpoint. So, so how were the conservatives able to take control of the debate and always get it framed in ways that the handouts for corporations and the wealthy are not questioned and successful programs that help the poor and working class never stop being questioned well i think two things one they've been they've been very good they've been very effective in their rhetoric you know you, you know you mentioned in the intro about how they always frame it the the progressives liberals want the nanny state um, so they've been very effective in always you know, characterizing things as being, you know, do you want the market, do you want to be left alone, and hiding government interventions that help the wealthy, help large corporations, is just being the natural workings of the market. But the other part of the story is that a lot of, you know, liberals and progressives have accepted that. I don't know how many of my friends complain about free market fundamentalism, that, you know, uh, the problem is we have these people on the other side who just uh, don't think the government should do anything. Well, if I were on the right, I'd probably pay a lot of those people, you know, um because they want people to think it's a choice between having the government do it or leave it to the market. So a lot of progressives, a lot of liberals, I think, have bought, bought the ideology, bought into this idea that it's only liberals, only progressives who you know, want the government. And that really helps their cause, you know, because we're basically making their argument for them. So you say when people on, on the progressive side, the liberal, the left, when they say, oh, these guys are free market uh, radicals or free market fundamentalists, it, it, it's totally missing the point, and it's not true. These guys really do not believe in free markets and, and are as in favor of government intervention as uh, liberals and progressives are. Absolutely. And, you know, we see it framed and often accepted that way by the progressives again and again. Just the most obvious example, and this is what I begin the book with, is talking about free trade. You know, so we have this argument that on the one hand, we have the neoliberals, uh, you know, Bush administration, well, Clinton administration as well, pushing 
free trade agreements. They call them free trade agreements, the North America Free Trade Agreement, the Central America Free Trade Agreement. So they're, they support free trade. And, you know, I say, you know, no, wait, wait, this isn't about free trade. This is about freeing up some types of trade. They want our manufacturing workers to compete with low-paid workers in Mexico or Central America or China, wherever it might be. They want to do that, but they don't want our most highly paid workers. They don't want the doctors and lawyers to compete. We could have, we could have designed the agreements to put downward pressure on the wages of the most highly paid workers in the country. We didn't do that. They're still largely protected. Also, um, a very important component of all these trade deals is they increase protection. They increase protection for patents and copyrights in almost every case. It's a very, very important part of the agreement. So one of the things that happens in the countries that we sign these deals with is they have to have much stronger patent laws, particularly for prescription drugs, and that means that the people in those countries have to pay much higher prices. And again, a patent is a government-granted monopoly. You know, it, you know, there's a policy reason for it. It gives firms an incentive to invest in research and developing new drugs. So there's a policy motive behind it, but it's a government policy and it's a government intervention in the market. But yet somehow these deals that provide for increased patent protection or increased copyright protection for Bill Gates or the entertainment industry, somehow these pa- get passed as free trade agreements. So, uh, yeah, the only thing being freed up is the, the uh, uh, restrictions on the labor, uh, the sort of unskilled labor, the lower paid labor, that we have rest- uh, restrictions lifted there. But for the people who are in the professions and the corporate world, they, they're getting all these kinds of protections put in on what are called free trade agreements. So there's downward pressure on the wages of working people at the lower end and the upward pressure on the people at the other end. Exactly. And what's remarkable is you never hear, you know, the doctors and lawyers issues. I mean, I don't know how many times I've raised this because we've actually, you know, we actually tightened up the rules on foreign doctors coming in the country back in the mid-90s. And I've sometimes raised this on panels with, with trade economists, and they look at me and they go, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And, like, I'm supposed to be embarrassed because they don't know their profession. You know, I mean, <laughs> doctors, you know, we have around uh, around 800,000 doctors that get an average of about 200,000 a year. So we're spending about $160 billion a year paying our doctors. Whereas if you look at how much we're spending on shoes or pants or, you know, um, steel, it's a fraction of that. If we put a tariff barrier on shoes or pants or steel, they'd be yelling and screaming. When I raised the barrier, discussed the issues about... Uh, barriers to doctors, foreign doctors coming to the country, they just look at me and go, well, I don't know anything about that. And, you know, I go, I go well, isn't it your job to know something about that? Aren't you a trade economist? <laughs> uh, but, but that's kind of like supposed to be the end of the discussion. I don't know anything about that, and so I guess we can't talk about it. Yeah, that that just seems to be the issue. There are these weird rules put in place about what can be talked about and what can't, and it's a uh, uh, who uh, who really puts these in place. That that's an interesting uh, question, and uh, you raise so many interesting questions in in your book. The conservative nanny state: how the wealthy use the government to stay rich and get richer. Uh, can you uh, explain uh, or, or or talk about the problems? Uh, with the assumption that higher unemployment is preferable to higher inflation. Okay, well, here, you know, this is a place where I discuss the Federal Reserve Board, and, you know, we've had uh, a process of, I don't know if I'd quite use the word depoliticizing, but removing the Federal Reserve Board from uh, its policies, from from public attention, from uh, public control over the last, well, really last 30 years or so, and it has two responsibilities. One is to, and this is in fact in law, 
maintain higher rates of employment that and it's officially written down that uh, they're supposed to target 4% unemployment as full employment and then also maintain stable prices so they have you know two responsibilities uh, uh, stable prices and low rates of unemployment and the issue here is you know they've tended to view the inflation goal as their primary and some some cases almost their only goal that's a little extreme perhaps to say that but they've been willing to tolerate higher rates of unemployment or even to bring on higher rates of unemployment in order to keep inflation down and the point i make in the book and you know i've written about this elsewhere as have others is that when when you talk about curbing inflation by raising unemployment that's not a neutral process um, it's when you raise the uh, just to work through the logic of this when they try to lower the inflation rate, the Fed's weapon for doing that, the mechanism through which they do that, is they raise interest rates. And the idea is that when you raise interest rates, you slow the economy. This is usually referred to with euphemisms, that they're trying to keep the economy from overheating. But the full logic of that is that when you slow the economy, you reduce the number of jobs, you raise the unemployment rate, and in raising the unemployment rate, you reduce wages, you slow wage growth. And that's how you curb inflation. So that's the mechanism through which higher interest rates are expected to lead to lower rates of inflation. But the key point here is that it doesn't affect everyone equally. When we raise interest rates and slow the economy and throw people out of work, disproportionately the people we're throwing out of work are those at the middle and bottom. We're throwing out manufacturing workers, uh, you know, auto workers, other people in manufacturing. They're losing their jobs. Retail clerks are likely to lose their jobs. You know, custodians, restaurant workers, people at the lower end, we're not going to see a lot of doctors go unemployed. We're not going to see a lot of CEOs go unemployed. So the process of slowing the economy um, by raising interest rates and increasing unemployment, that's one which disproportionately hits workers at the middle and bottom. And, in fact, we have pretty good data on this now. We've looked at wage growth as a function of the unemployment rate, and we find that when you look at wage growth by income decile, so we separate out those at the bottom and middle from those at the top, we find that higher rates of unemployment have much more impact on the rate of wage growth for those who are at the tenth decile, at the bottom decile, I should say, or, or the, in the middle of the second, third, fourth decile than they do for those, say, at the ninth decile. So it's a way of reducing the rate of inflation that's very, very far from neutral. It's not as though the pain is felt equally by everyone. The pain is felt disproportionately by those at the middle and bottom. So if we step back and we go, okay, you know, suppose the inflation rate's ticking up from 2 to 3%. You know, well, the Fed will become very concerned about that. You know, they are concerned about that, I should say, because that's what they're looking at now. And they may, they recently lowered rates, but we may see them raise them again in the not-too-distant future. And if they do so, what they're saying is, well, we're very concerned about this modest uptick in the rate of inflation, and we want to prevent that by throwing more people out of work and making them accept lower wages, except that the people we want to throw out of work are those at the middle and bottom, and put downward pressure on their wages, we're not going to have much impact on the wages of, you know, the professors, the doctors, the lawyers, the most highly educated, the most highly paid people, and certainly not the CEOs and the hedge fund folks. So it's a very, very class-biased policy. And, you know, what I say in the book, and I said elsewhere, you know, we're all concerned about inflation. We don't want to see inflation go to, you know, 500%. We can't have that. You know, it, right. it, it is a problem. But we might see the trade-offs very differently if, you know, we recognize that our mechanism for controlling inflation is disproportionately aimed at those at the middle and bottom. And what I suggest in the book, and this sounds very strange to economists, but, 
you know, it wasn't that long ago that most economists actually thought we could try to contain inflation with things like wage price guidelines. Not that those are great, but they actually have had some success. They're still employed in, you know, in countries like uh, um, Austria and the Netherlands and uh, Ireland. They actually have uh, targets for wages, wage settlements for unions. And, you know, to my mind, they've been reasonably successful in helping to put a check on inflation. Not perfect, but they've helped. And, you know, that certainly seems a hell of a lot better to me than pushing up the unemployment rate by two or three percentage points. Right. So it seems that we, we have the situation where people who are uh, at the top level or people at the investor class are making these decisions about that, that we prefer this amount of inflation, or this low amount of inflation with a little bit higher amount of unemployment, and that's affecting people at the other end. And it seems it, it's a little bit disturbing when you look at it that way. And I appreciate you uh, making that clear in your book. Uh, are you still with us, Dean? I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, still here. Okay, this no, seems like the you know, it's a, I, I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to go out and buy Alan Greenspan's book, but it's actually very, very interesting in that that vein because Greenspan writes about the the work of the Federal Reserve Board, and and it's yeah, obviously writes about that. He, it, it's quite striking that he has this idea that this should be removed from public discussion. So it's as though you know we want you know leave us alone. You know, we're it's it's as though, and I suspect if we had Alan Greenspan on the line here, he'd probably basically agree with this. It's as though, you know, we had the engineers there who were figuring out how to build the, you know, the we're trying to construct a bridge, and you know, they don't want those politicians around telling them how to construct the bridge. You know, we're we're engineers. Let us, you know, figure out how to construct the bridge in the best way possible. Why are you bothering us? You know, asking us these questions and this and that. That's very much the view of Greenspan, which I think is, you know, typical. I mean, I don't think he's any different from probably Ben Bernanke that way or most uh, most people involved with the Federal Reserve Board, or for that matter, most economists. But I think it's, uh, you know, my point I would say about this is, this is very much a political question. You know, there's there's risks associated with higher inflation. Um, there's risks associated with high unemployment. Where you put those trade-offs, how much risk are you willing to accept, that's very much a political matter, and the idea of, pulling this out from public discussion and, you know, doing it off in a corner with the experts, you know, that's, um, it's a very pernicious policy, and, you know, I don't, I don't think the public should put up with it. Right. You're just saying that we need to know what the debate is and have it out there in the open. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. Uh, we're talking today to Dean Baker about his book, The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. Uh, something I really want to get into here, Dean, is uh, can you explain how corporations are nothing natural to free markets and only exist because of government intervention? Yeah, I mean, the basic point here is, you know, sort of very obvious and evident that, you know, corporations, they're legal entities, they are created by the government. So, you know, if you or I decide we have a great idea and we want to go out and market a new car or a new computer, whatever it might be, you know, we could just, the two of us, sit down and form the Larson-Baker, you know, partnership and go out and market it. And, you know, it's the two of us. And, you know, if it you know, we share the profits, share the losses, share the liabilities, share the risk. You know, fair enough. But to have a corporation that is a separate legal identity, that requires the government. And, you know, that's a, that's a very, very big deal, first and most obviously, because a corporation has limited liability. So what that means is, you know, we could borrow money, you know, we could issue stock, and if, you know, we end up with huge liabilities, well, you know, we could give this gift to all the people who've invested in our company that, you know, they're not liable beyond, you know, the amount they invested in the stock. So if they put, you know, 20000 into our stock and turns out, you know, our idea was really stupid, 
you know, when we ended up uh, with massive debts, well, they just, they lost their 20000 They don't owe anything more than that. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes we might do things that impose costs on people that, you know, they didn't agree to. You know, maybe when producing our cars, we end up polluting a whole town, a whole city. And, you know, we cause all sorts of harm to the people who live there. Well, our stockholders are, they, they lost their $20,000. They're not liable beyond that. And neither are you or I. We're just liable for, you know, the extent to which we invested in our company. Well, that's a special privilege that's created by by the government. And, you know, there's a good argument for it. I'm not saying corporations are a bad thing. I think, you know, it was a way in which to, to allow for wealth to accumulate. It's a good thing in, in, you know, in an awful lot of ways. But the point is, they are creations of the state. They aren't, they don't exist in, you know, it's not just you or I. The point was we went to the government and created a corporate entity and got the privileges of a corporate entity. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. I mean, the context in which I, I raise this front and center is we have a lot of people running around Washington that whine about double taxation. They say that, you know, suppose I own, you know, $100 million in stock and they, they send me dividend checks for, let's say, $5 million a year. Well, their argument is, why should I pay taxes on those dividends? That Because they were already taxed as corporate profits. You know, so they say there's a double taxation. We taxed them when the company earned them. And now you want to tax them again when they pay the pay this money out to me as dividends. And the point I make in, in in the book is that this is an entirely voluntary tax. If I didn't think the benefits of a corporate structure were worth paying the corporate tax, I have the option. I could have just invested in partnerships. So I've chosen. I've decided that the benefit to me of having limited liability, I could put my money in a corporation and know that. You know, if it goes bad, if they get into trouble, I've only lost the money I've invested. They can't go and take my home, take, you know, whatever money I have elsewhere. All they could do is, you know, just take what I invested with them. That's a very, very big gift from the government. So the quid pro quo on that is that I pay a corporate income tax. And if I object to that, I could just put my money in a partnership. So, you know, what what the conservatives have been allowed to do is they've completely distorted the debate here what they want, well, it's understandable what they want, but they've misrepresented the story here. What they want is the privileges of corporate status that the government gives you without having to pay for it. So right. it's understandable they want it, but there's no reason for us to give it to them. So, so yeah, the, the corporate tax, you kind of, I, I think, even say is it's more just like a, a fee. It's a fee for having this privilege. And if you don't want the privilege, fine. You you opt out. You go for the partnership, as, as you said. And, and the fact, you, you also make this point, the fact that so many choose to incorporate must mean that they think it's a pretty good deal with all the taxes and, and regulations, that, that they still are getting so much out of it, it's quite worth it. Exactly. They've, they, they've, they've voted with their feet. You know, they've, no, one, no one ever forced them to form a corporation. So this was a decision they all voluntarily made. They could always disincorporate if they, you know, if they decide, you know, this is a real bad deal for us. You know, God, we have to pay this corporate income tax. That's an outrage. We're going to reform, you know, form as a partnership. I haven't heard of many people doing that. I mean, Microsoft <laughs> could send a letter to its shareholders saying, you know, look, we did the arithmetic on this. This is a bad deal for us. And you know, we're going to be a partnership next year, you know, so you'll own, uh, you know, whatever percent of the partnership. They haven't done that, you know, so they obviously think that the benefits of corporate status far exceed the, the costs that are imposed through the corporate income tax or other restrictions that the government imposes on corporations. Were you involved at all in the documentary, The Corporation? No, you know, I saw it as a good movie, but I, I have to say I had no no involvement. I didn't know they were making it. I was glad to see it when it, when it came out, but I, I no, I had no role in it.
Yeah, I thought they made some very good points in that about, you know, just uh, some of the same points you're making about that uh, uh, how corporations are an entity that, that only exists because of the government and uh, that they went into the, more of the like behavior of corporations and how that they seemed sort of... Uh, sociopathic but but i mean that might sound a little extreme but I, I think the point that that movie was making that not that we should eliminate corporations but that we should maybe restructure and maybe actually impose more government regulations on them and put them back the ones that were taken out well we should just send you know at the very beginning you know into in order to have a serious discussion we do have to understand where they come from what they are and you know going back you know certainly through english u.s history you know, the, the origins of corporate status was clearly that this was a privilege. You know, so if you go back to, you know, 18th century England, corporate status was generally given on given to companies that were thought to fill some special public purpose. So disproportionately there were uh, canals, companies involved in transportation, canals and turnpikes. Um, also the South Sea Trading Company, so they were involved in trading, you know, trying to extend the British Empire. So they were, it, it was a special privilege uh, that were given to companies because it was felt they served a public purpose. And it was only, you know, in the 19th century, the U.S. predated England on this, but it was only in the 19th century that made this idea, well, there's a general public purpose in promoting wealth, and that's why you could have general incorporation. And in the United States, that dates from early in the 19th century. In England, that, didn't, didn't, that concept didn't develop, or law didn't develop, I should say, until late, uh, it was about 1860s, that that first came into existence in England. So the idea that you somehow had a right to have a corporation, well, that was never the case, and it only came about that you could have sort of general corporate status with the idea that this was, you know, in the public interest, that you have these entities to increase wealth. Um, that came about, you know, certainly fairly late, particularly in England. It was not, it was not always there. It's a fairly recent development. Uh, so anybody who's halfway paying attention knows that that salaries for corporate CEOs have have skyrocketed over the last thirty years in the U.S. and have far outpaced those of their European or Japanese counterparts. Uh, how did that happen? Well, here too, I think it's it's again very important to understand. You know, the the sort of folk wisdom on this, or at least what the conservatives would like us to believe, is that. This is just the market that, you know, we had, you know, changes in the market, you know, uh, increasing uh, globalization, corporations grew larger in size, and now, you know, the CEOs, it's, it's so much more important to get a good CEO than it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So that's why we get the, these CEOs that get, you know, salaries in the tens or even hundreds of millions. Um, you know, that, that's a nice sort of story to tell, but as a practical matter, it's, it really is hard to make sense of that. I mean, first and foremost, because as you mentioned, we don't see CEOs in Europe and Japan getting those salaries, and, you know, you compare the performance of companies like Toyota and, you know, some of the other European and Japanese companies, you're pretty hard-pressed to say that, you know, the U.S. companies are beating their pants. It doesn't seem to be the case. So it doesn't seem like we have all the blue-chip CEOs and they've got, you know, suckers in Europe and Japan, you know, by, I haven't done an analysis you know, CEO by CEO, but I'd be willing to say that on average, their CEOs are probably about as good, you know, as as our CEOs, at least, uh, you know, taking the standard measure, you know, increasing share price or increasing profits. What's going on is we've had a breakdown of social mores that, you know, there were sort of standards that held CEO pay in check, and those have largely broken down over the last 25, 30 years. So the CEOs at major companies are sitting there in companies that, you know, have revenues in, you know, tens or even hundreds of billions a year, and they're going, well, give me $100 million, give me $200 million, give me $300 million, 
And the people they're saying it to are the boards of directors who most often the CEOs were the ones who appointed. So, you know, the situation I always compare this to is suppose you or I sat down with a group of our friends and said, you know, how much do you think I should get paid? And, you know, instead of sitting uh, sitting around with whatever money we might have to pay ourselves, they're sitting on top of Exxon that, you know, has <laughs> you know, hundreds, of million, hundreds of billions a year. Well, they might give us a lot of money, you know, and that, that that's what you basically find. So what you have is a situation where the CEOs are basically picking their friends to decide their salary, and naturally their friends decide they should get lots of money. So in Europe and Japan, they have more checks and balances on this, and they have a different sort of mindset about it? Yeah, and it's at two ends. So, so on one end, you tend to have much more long-term ownership of, of shares in Europe and Japan that you, two phenomena, one, in some cases you still have family ownership, significant family roles. You still have that in some cases in the U.S., but much less so. The other more important story is that you often have banks that have major interest in a company that persist for long periods of time. So they're not about to, you know, just, you know, give a blank check to the CEOs. The other part of the story is that you still have more norms around it that, you know, if the CEO of a European company walked away with, you know, a 30, 50 million paycheck, you know, it would raise more questions among both other executives and also you're much more likely to have a union in Europe, at least, uh, than in the United States. And you know, the union very well might object to seeing the CEO walk away with, you know, those sorts of paychecks. So you've managed to keep much tighter rein on pay in uh, Europe and Japan than in the U.S. And as I say, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to make the case that somehow it's led to inferior performance. Also, I mean, just to take some recent examples, we saw the uh, CEO at Merrill Lynch um, it was basically fired. I mean, uh, Merrill Lynch had, uh, I think it was around $8 billion in write-downs connected with um, bad mortgage debt, and you know it's a pretty big loss even for a very big company like Merrill Lynch. Uh, so anyhow, the CEO is, is essentially fired for that. He you know, officially resigned or whatever, but you know for all practical purposes, the guy was fired. He's walking away with 160 million dollars. I mean, <laughs> Something you know. seems odd about that. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's one thing. I mean, I wouldn't say that anything the guy did necessarily would have merited 160 million, even if he had done a good job. But this guy had basically done a disastrous job. I mean, I don't know if Merrill Lynch is on the edge of bankruptcy or anything, but that's still a very big loss. And you know, you walk away with 160 million, even when you do really badly. You know that seems a little hard to justify as that being a market transaction. Yeah, most of us, we get fired from our jobs. We uh, get two weeks' pay or something like that, and <laughs> it's not... Yeah, yeah. You know, so so that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty good deal when you get $160 million for it. Yeah, yeah. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. Talking today to Dean Baker. We're discussing his book, The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. And, uh, Dean, you are also, uh, you you are an economist and a co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Yeah, we're an independent think tank. We've been around since 1999. We work on a variety of domestic and international issues, and Basically, what we try to do is look for places where we think there's sort of major gaps in policy debates. Uh, just to give you a couple examples, uh, one domestic, one international. We were one of the first who were arguing that the Social Security scare stories weren't true, and uh, my co-director, Mark Weisbrot, and I wrote a book back in uh, 2000 called Social Security, the Phony Crisis, which made the point that the program is basically sound and could pay benefits very well indefinitely into the future, and 
it won't even face a shortfall for, well, at that time, more than 40 years was the projection. So, um, you know, I think that had a role in shifting the debate, and more people are now saying that. But uh, back in 2000, you had people, both Democrats and Republicans, who tended to argue that Social Security was facing a crisis. On the international side, um, the back, you know, back, uh, say, five, six, seven years ago, it was common for a lot of people to claim that neoliberal economic policies had produced strong growth in the developing world, but, you know, they would sometimes acknowledge there were problems of inequality, poverty, pollution. What we've tried to make is that uh, neoliberal policies actually haven't led to strong growth, and the best example there is uh, Latin America, I should also say sub-Saharan Africa, but in both cases, there's actually been very, very bad growth over the last quarter century in which these countries followed neoliberal economic policies. So we've, we've tried our best to make that point. I think, you know, most people have begun to acknowledge that because it's, uh, it's a fairly simple point. There's not really that much dispute about the data that we're looking at. And, you know, you could argue whether things might have been worse had they not followed neoliberal policies, but the point is these have not been successful even by the most basic measure of producing economic growth. So we look in a wide variety of areas for sort of conventional wisdom that we could challenge, and, you know, for better or worse, there seems to be a lot of it. Okay, that's the uh, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, uh, www.cepr.net? That's right, www.cepr.net. Let me also do a plug for my book, because one of the things with my book, uh, people could download it for free. Um, you could buy the paperback for, I think it's $7, but... You could download the book for free. It's at www.conservativenannystate.org. Okay, and we'll give that out again before the show is up today. So it, it sounds like what what you in particular are, are doing in the Center for Economic and Policy Research in general is, is taking the, these wrong notions that are put out there by, by the conservatives, by the right wing, these... it's sort of propaganda, and they, they take all of the arguments uh, about economic issues and other issues as well, actually, and frame them in a way that you're constantly having to undo the disinformation that they, they put out. And, and I'm really glad you, you mentioned the book about social social security, the phony crisis. I'm definitely going to have to read that one. But uh, yeah, so they, um, I, I guess would, uh, let me see. Okay, well, let me put this this way. If you were, uh, okay, we're going to have a new president probably in a year. If uh, if this new president were to appoint you uh, chief economic advisor, what would you uh, put together as some of the, the main points of a plan, that things that you would think we would need to do as far as reframing debates, looking at things differently? Well, um I think healthcare has to be front and center in you know the agenda of uh, you know any whoever comes in office in uh, 2009, and you know we waste an incredible amount with our healthcare system. I mean, uh, by some estimates, more than 30 percent of our healthcare costs go to administration, and this really is um, th- this really is uh, because of our system of private healthcare insurance. You know, we have a huge amount of money run the insurance companies. Uh, wasted running the insurance companies. We have a huge amount of money that gets wasted at the level of the providers, the doctors, the hospitals, other providers. They have to deal with all the different forms for all the insurance companies. I would really like to see us move towards a system like what you have in Canada, or I should say actually closer to home, simply our Medicare system. If we could adopt universal Medicare, you know, for the whole country, that would, you know, both provide health care for people, something we should have done long ago. I mean, health care coverage for people 
and also provide enormous savings in administrative costs. Um, I realize politically it's a very, very difficult task, so you know, I've been talking with people, how can we get from here to there, how can we do that incrementally? But I think that's, that is where we want to go, and we really have to do it because the costs are you know, they're very high now, and they're growing very, very rapidly. So you know, we will not be able to afford this you know, if costs keep going as they're going you know, 10, 20 years down the road, which is going to have a big impact on the economy, or give ever more people without health care insurance. Um, some of the other issues, you know, we, we, uh, we're talking about the Fed. I think the, the Fed made a colossal mistake in not doing anything about the housing bubble. There's not too much you can do to fix that now in the sense that house prices are falling. They will continue to fall. Um, that's going to be very, very bad news for a lot of people because they expected their house prices to hold their value or even go up. So, you know, you have a lot of people with a, a very rude surprise there. Um, one of the things, and, you know, in fact, this may be even this actually should be done, ideally would be done before the next president takes office, is you do something about all the foreclosures that people are facing. I came up with a proposal, which I call Own to Rent, which would change the law on foreclosures so that a homeowner that's facing a foreclosure would have the option to remain in their home as a renter paying the fair market rent. Um, This would simply be part of the foreclosure process, so it doesn't require any new bureaucracy, any government agencies, any government money for that matter, simply gives uh, changes the rules around foreclosure to be somewhat more beneficial to the current homeowner. Um, so anyhow, that, that's just something mentioning in passing about something, you know, we will, we do and will have a very serious problem with so many people faced with losing their home because of falling house prices. Uh, well, that's a, that's a really interesting concept. Yeah, well, I've gotten a lot of people interested, and actually some of them have been from, uh, you know, the, the other side of the political spectrum. Some of the people who've, uh, you know, uh, really liked this idea were like Greg Mankiw, who was uh, President Bush's chief economist for a period of time. Also Andrew Samwick, who was also one of the top economists in the Bush administration, um, thought this was a very good idea. So, I, you know, I get a little worried when I have people from the other side, uh, you know, really liking one of my ideas, but on the other hand... Um, you know, I'm willing to think that they did it for the right reasons. That it, it, it's simple, it's targeted, it's not a, doesn't create a cumbersome bureaucracy, doesn't cost a lot of money. It does what you want it to do. It protects people that are facing the loss of their home. And even there, it's not like you know, you're not giving them a freebie. They're not coming out great, but you know, at least they'll, they'll have a roof in their head. And if they like the place that they're they're living in right now, if it's a good neighborhood, uh, good schools for their kids. It gives them the option to stay there, so that's at least a lot better than the situation they're facing if they're foreclosed on and they're out in the street. Yeah, it seems a little bit less brutal than the situation yeah, now. So um, your uh, think tank, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, I, I don't think there are many other think tanks with a similar sort of take to what you're doing there. We're relatively lonely, and again, that's, you know, it's unfortunate. I mean, it means, you know, we don't have to worry about finding things to do, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, sometimes we're a voice in the wilderness. I mean, you know, we do work with other people, though. I mean, it's not as though we're completely isolated here, but, you know, it's unfortunate. Economics is, it tends to be a very uh, conservative profession. I should say conservative in the sense of being sort of pro-business. Um, it's not as though, you know, most economists, if I had to guess, probably vote Democrats. So it's not as though they're all right-wingers, but... You know, they tend to be very pro-business and uh, support policies that have the effect of redistributing income upwards. And, uh, you know, that means we have a lot of work, a lot of things to challenge. And, you know, some of that is their disposition. Some of it, quite honestly, is, uh, you know, where the money is. You know, sometimes we get involved in arguments with, you know, say, the insurance industry, the prescription drug industry. I mean, 
you know, they have lots of money, and uh, they could hire economists who will say, you know, produce research that supports their positions. And, uh, you know, whether that's corrupt or whether they just happen to support those positions and the industries uh, are able to amplify their voices to ensure they get a wider audience, I don't know. I suppose it doesn't really matter. But that means there's an awful lot of work for us. So, you know, uh, every day of the week, uh, you know, pick any area I work in, let's, let's just say prescription drugs, there's constant, constantly new research coming out showing that if we do anything to cut the uh, strength of patent protection, reduce the prices that the drug companies get for their drugs, then we'll never see any new drugs invented and uh, all these people will die of cancer who didn't have to if we just maintain high prices. I mean... There's no shortage of economists who produce research like that. Well, I guess that was my point by uh, of asking about uh, you know the Center for Economic and Policy Research and and the viewpoint that that you guys have, and comparing that, it just seems that there are so many of these very well-funded right-wing think tanks. And, and is that, that one of the main problems, why the debates get framed the way they do so often? Well, I think it is. I mean, you know, you get economists out there who will say this, that, and that, and it's not that I attach so much power to economists, but the point is they they can affect neutralize, you know, public presence in a debate. So, you know, I've seen this happen many times where, you know, someone will get up there and make an argument about, you know, why you know, this trade deal is bad because it's, you know, throwing workers out of work in Detroit or wherever it might be. And then you get an economist run up there and go, well, you know, I sympathize with you losing your jobs, but, you know, really, if you just understood trade theory, you'd realize you're a stupid Neanderthal and we have to do this otherwise, you know, and then they'll run through things that no one understands there. And, uh, you know, they sort of uh, have dismissed the argument on the other side. And, you know, it, that's, uh, that can be very effective. It's very effective in depoliticizing a lot of arguments because, you know, most people don't go to grad school in economics. So once you get the economists out there saying, well, you know, I'm sympathetic to you, but you're just wrong, um, most people don't have a basis for countering that. And as I say, very often the economist is being misleading, if not right, outright dishonest, when, when they're making these claims because, you know, very often they can't support the positions they're saying. Um, you know, I, I'll give you a pet peeve of mine, and, you know, I argued this with many economists, I feel fairly confident in saying they don't have a response to it. Usually economists, and here I'll think of the more liberal ones, they'll say, you know, well, look, we support trade and we recognize that they're losers for trade, you know, so they're people that our auto workers might lose their jobs if we produce more cars in Mexico or textile workers for buying the uh, clothes from China. But what we could do, because we're good people, is we'll, we'll compensate the losers, we'll redistribute from the winners to the losers. And they'll say, in that way, everyone's better off. Now, there's two big problems with that. The first and most obvious is simply the political one. How do you compensate? Well, what that means is, you know, taxing the winners, you know, disproportionately the wealthier people. Obviously, they're the winners. And coming up with some program called trade adjustment assistance, call it whatever you like, and sending the checks or getting the money in some way to those who lose. Okay, well, that doesn't happen. You know, in principle, it could happen, but politically... We know that's never happened except on a very, very small scale. But the second reason, and, and this is just a straight economic reason as to why their argument about this is totally illegitimate, is that it, what they typically do is, you know, they'll say that there's distortions. You know, currently we have a trade barrier with China and Mexico. We have a tariff or, you know, quota, so, something else limiting our imports. And it's easy to show with standard economic theory that, you know, this this imposed costs on the economy. It's just a waste. We have inefficiency. So in addition to the redistributive aspects of it, there's just straight-out waste, 
So we all want to get rid of waste, so you know, we get rid of the trade barrier. But then if we impose a tax, let's say we want to do the redistribution, we actually have the political will to do it, so you know, we're going to tax the winners and give the money to losers. Well, whatever tax we impose also implies waste. And there's no way we could know a priori whether the waste associated with the tax and transfer program, taxing the winners and giving to the losers, we can't know offhand, you know, certainly not a priori, that that's going to be less than the amount of waste we reduced by getting rid of the tariffs. So in other words, you know, we could easily say as economists that it's going to be more efficient, we'll eliminate waste if we got rid of tariffs on trade with China. On the other hand, putting up a tax on people and then redistributing to the losers from that also leads to waste and inefficiency. And we don't know offhand. We'd have to look at case by case. We don't know offhand that that deal on net ends up leading to more efficiency. It could very well lead to less efficiency. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, when we had a lot more of these tariffs and things like this, and, and we had a much higher percentage of the population unionized, it, it seems that uh, real wages for working Americans were, were better and, and that the overall economy was stronger. Am I wrong in that? No, we had much, much better growth in that period, uh, 47 to 73. It's often referred to as the golden age. I mean, the economy is growing very rapidly. Wages were growing in step with productivity. Productivity was growing more rapidly, certainly than uh, through the period. Uh, it's often referred to as a slowdown, 73 to 95. But even, you know, when we had this burst of productivity in 95, the speed up in productivity growth uh, associated with, you know, the um, information technology revolution, um, even with that speed up in productivity growth from 95 to, to 2005, we still, our rare productivity growth was still about a full percentage point less than what we had through that long period from 1947 to 73. So what we could say when we compare 47 to 73 to the last quarter century, or even taking the best 10 years in that quarter century, was we both had more equality in that period, so the gains of productivity growth were going to everyone, up and down the wage distribution, and in addition, we had more rapid growth. And we also had higher tax rates on the upper uh, income levels, correct? That's right. We had much, much higher tax rates. Now, it's a little complicated to make comparisons because, you know, we had a lot more loopholes as well, but mm -hmm. still on net, we almost certainly had higher tax rates on, you know, the wealthiest 10% and certainly higher corporate taxes. So if you take that period, 47 to 73, when, when we had the higher taxes, we had more of these tariffs, more unionization, all of these things, and, and things seem to be going better for most Americans, it, it it's flies in the face of conservative dogma. Yeah, well, it does. And, and, you know, they don't have any really good answers. What they have to say is, well, there was something about the world in 47 to 73 that changed. So we can't do that again, you know, so that the implication is, well, it wasn't that we had more equality, it wasn't that we had high tax rates, it was something about the world in 47 to 73 that changed, and we don't have the option to have, you know, sort of the good wage growth, um, the relative equality that we had in that period. So, you know, what that something is, you know, they do a lot of hand-waving. There's all sorts of things we could suggest, but none of them are obvious. So sometimes they say globalization, which... You know, I, I sort of wring my hands and I go, well, if globalizing made us 
horror, then why did we do it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, well, it didn't, didn't help anybody uh, we hang out with. Uh, you know, it's uh, maybe a few people at the very top uh, got... Uh, yeah, I mean, if that's their if that's their story, then it's not a very good one for them. I mean, you know, I, the the argument is supposed to be we want to have increased trade, increased globalization, because it's supposed to make us wealthier, not make us poorer. So, it it doesn't fit very well if that's if that's what they want to say. Um, you know, they're, 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 you know, not all the things they'll say are bogus. I mean, the price of oil, of course, surged in in '73, and I think that was. Uh, responsible for the immediate problems of that decade. So, you know, in in uh, the period 73 to 75, you had OPEC first start coming together and they tripled the price of oil, and that was a big whammy on the U.S. economy. And then at the end of the decade, we had the Iranian Revolution, which was another big hit. But, you know, the oil prices came back down. So, you know, if someone wants to put great importance on, on the oil price increases of the 70s, which I don't think is unreasonable, it certainly was a very big impact on the economy, the fact was those were largely reversed in the 80s and into the 90s. So um, if we had, you know, a very, very bad period uh, in the 70s because of high oil prices, then the 80s and 90s should have been very good because we had oil prices falling. Yeah. Now, what about uh, the rollback of, of antitrust uh, regulations? How, how was that a factor? Well, you know, the the Reagan administration, I think, largely uh, got rid of the antitrust department and the Justice Department, and uh, the Carter Carter Clinton administration, I should say, didn't do much to put it back. And, you know, we certainly had uh, consolidation in a lot of industries. I wouldn't say that all the mergers, all the consolidation were bad. In many cases, it made sense. But, you know, I think in some cases, uh, if we'd had a real antitrust department, they, they wouldn't have allowed... You know, some of the concentration we've seen, what sort of jumps out at me is uh, the case of Microsoft, where, you know, it has, uh, you know, such absolute dominance in uh, the computer uh, computer operating systems, not because it's a good system. I don't think anyone has used it or certainly anyone has compared it to, to Macintosh, <laughs> or, you know, or to, to uh, for that matter, Linux, you know, free system would say that, that Windows is a good system. But, you know, you managed to gain monopoly control by, or near monopoly control by classic anti-competitive tactics. And the Justice Department essentially looked the other way, so they let them consolidate in the, in the late 80s, 90s. You know, eventually we did get that famous suit in, in uh, the late 90s, which did put some restrictions on Microsoft, but then they pretty much went around, went around the restrictions and just ignored them. Uh, fortunately, uh, we're getting the benefit these days of European antitrust regulations. So um, they put restrictions on Microsoft that our own antitrust division uh, did not, but nonetheless, they, they bind Microsoft worldwide, so we're getting some benefit there. But that's certainly a case where, you know, we're getting computers that are more high-priced and, you know, not as good as they could be because we've had the Justice Department look the other way. Um, there's certainly other cases where you could look at it. I think that's probably the least arguable. Um, other cases, you know, perhaps the consolidations in uh, the communications industry that goes beyond antitrust because we obviously have a public interest in having diverse sources of communication. Um, so, you know, we've allowed a lot of consolidation, and you know, certainly the Bush administration would allow a lot more in in, in the media industry. Um, you know, again, that's at least runs a risk of limiting uh, the range of opinions we could see. Um, but you know, really across the board, I mean, we've just uh, really taken a hike on antitrust. And again, I don't mean to say that all the mergers are bad. Many of them were good and justified, but, you know, some of them were not, and, you know, we cannot count on serious antitrust enforcement at this point.
Well, that's one of the things I, I like about uh, you, your viewpoint and what you put forth in your book, The Conservative Nanny State. It's, it's not this black and white thing that, that government intervention is always good or always bad and that we always need regulation or we should never have regulation. You're just saying that we need to realistically look at these things and, and, and not have the debate framed by people who have an agenda to move uh, money upwards more to people who already have quite a bit. So, you know, just having a real debate and being honest about where these things are at. And so uh, I um, you know, want to mention the book title again, The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. Dean Baker, our guest today. And uh, Mr. Baker is an economist and co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. And their website is www.cepr.net. And uh, Dean, how do they, uh, you said they can download the book for free? Yeah, it's available at our at uh, the website www.conservativenannystate.org. So people are free to download the book, and you could also get a paperback copy. Again, I think it's seven or eight dollars. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact sum offhand, but that's basically the cost of printing and shipping. Okay, well, we're really just about out of time here. I got so much more to discuss with you because there, there, there's so much there. But I urge everyone to uh, check out the book. And uh, you know, you you go into tort reform and, and that uh, how that conservatives want the gov- all the government intervention to help them from the, you know their viewpoint of, of how they look at this. They want the uh, uh, all kinds of regulations on what lawyers can do to limit the ability of people to. Uh, sue uh, large corporations or whoever has harmed them. So you really go into that well in the book. You also talk about bankruptcy. You know, I thought the right-wingers did a masterful job in in framing the debate leading up to the bankruptcy reform bill. And, and, you know, they they got pretty much everything they wanted, and it seems like it was a big uh, handout to the uh, banking and uh, uh, credit industries. Basically, they got, you know, retroactive change in the law. So, you know, you had people who took a debt under one set of terms, and then, you know, they they got the uh, government to rewrite the terms of the contract so that, you know, they could chase after people and collect money for the credit card industry, you know, pretty much indefinitely. Very generous for the credit card industry. Yeah, and and, and not so good for uh, working people who uh, have maybe uh, medical t- catastrophes that their insurance doesn't cover and find themselves in a bad situation. And uh, so, you know, the, the the debate was framed that borrowers are always the ones who are irresponsible, and not that the uh, credit institutions are doing irresponsible lending. And so, uh, again, the, the right wing did a very masterful job in framing that debate, and you pointed out quite well. So, yeah, I wish we had more time to go into more of this, but we're we're out of time. So. Uh, Dean Baker, thanks so much for being with us today. Sure, thanks a lot for having me on. Okay, talk to you again sometime. Okay, good. Bye. All right, yes, that's Dean Baker, and that book's The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. And, uh, yes, he's an economist. He's a co-director of the Center for Economic Policy for Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. That's uh, www.cepr.net. And uh, so we've got Your Dog's Breakfast coming up in about three minutes. That's always good, so stay tuned for that. Um, I think I will be off uh, next week for Thanksgiving. Probably have somebody in playing some wonderful music for you. And I'll be back the following week. And uh, so got to close it out here. Robert Larson saying the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback, you can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole. So I'll be talking to you in two weeks. Stay tuned right now. 
Ryder Palmier is coming up with your dog's breakfast. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.